Good morning, Funchal. Good afternoon, Nikosha. And good evening in Mood from Washington, D.C. I'm Ethan Plotkin, and this is Intrigue Out Loud, your go-to audio guide to the globe. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue senior editor Valentina Calvi to discuss a decades-long land dispute in the Caucasus and some big news for developing economies. It's all coming up. morning, Val. How are you? Hi, Ethan. I'm doing very well. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. I understand you're at the uh, at, on a Tuscan seaside. Is that right? <laughs> yes. I've decided to swap out my rainy London for good old sunny Italy for this weekend. Not jealous. <laughs> not jealous at all. So, Val, this one is uh, really a head spinner. I think it's a story that we've followed at Intrigue for, for a long time, but there are so many twists and so many turns that it's been Hard to know how to approach it. Yeah, uh, and I think that's putting it mildly. There are a few stories that can match the intrigue of whatever happened in Russia over the weekend, Um, but I think this might just be one of them. So today we're talking about the dispute between Armenia and Azerbaijan over a 3,100 square kilometer plot of land commonly known as the Nagorno-Karabakh region, but also referred to by Armenians as Artsakh. Um, And like you said, it just has to be amongst one of the most complicated disputes on Earth and one that will require a lot of background uh, to understand. So do I have the green flag to go on a short rant slash slash lecture? (laughs) Yes, honestly, I I could probably use this uh, this history lesson, too. Okay, great. Thank you. So ownership over this region has oscillated for centuries, but the source of this dispute uh, dates, as so many other land disputes in this part of the world do, um, to the Soviet era, when the Bolsheviks gave the Azerbaijani Soviet Republic control over Nagorno-Karabakh, despite the region having a majority Armenian population. Uh, You know, and that didn't really seem to matter all that much. Yes, the Soviet republics had some nominal degree of autonomy, but they were all part of the same Soviet Union. That's a union part. Um, So, you know, there was enough freedom of movement within the USSR that the border distinctions didn't cause too much friction. Unfortunately, uh, that all changed in the late 80s and early 90s when the Soviet Union started to collapse. So now what you had is a majority Armenian enclave that, mind you, is completely isolated from Armenia because it's surrounded by Azerbaijan's sovereign territory on all sides. So starting in 1988, after the region voted to secede from Azerbaijan, a six-year war broke out between Armenia, who was backed by Russia, and uh, Azerbaijan, who received support from uh, Afghanistan's Mujahideen and fighters from Chechnya too. Uh, You know, it was a brutal war with millions of people displaced and tens of thousands of casualties. But by the end of the war in 1994, the sides agreed to a ceasefire, which basically established Nagorno-Karabakh as a de facto independent region with close ties to Armenia. But the international community largely recognizes it as part of Azerbaijan still. Um, So... Despite tons of cross-border skirmishes over the past few decades, that status quo has stuck up until 2020. Oh my goodness, Val. That was uh, a tour de force. So what what happened in in 2020? Well, that's when what's now called the second Nagorno-Karabakh war broke out 
Um, that war lasted only 44 days, but saw a very different outcome. So the Russians weren't as supportive of the Armenians, and the Azerbaijanis had for decades been collecting and building up their defenses in the region, uh, including with the help of uh, the cheap Turkish drones that have become a staple uh, of the war in Ukraine. And they used these weapons to devastating effect and were able to conquer a ton of land in Nagorno-Karabakh, plus all of the undisputed territory that Armenia had been occupying since the end of the first war, uh, the one in the 1990s. Um, and once, you know, a seemingly significant result of this war in 2020 uh, that we have to bear in mind um, is that the two sides agreed to let Russian troops into certain contested areas to act as peacekeepers, right? Unfortunately, and, you know, obviously the war in Ukraine has been a big distraction uh, for Russia uh, and Azerbaijan has used that to its advantage and tighten, you know, tightening its control over the region. And how has Azerbaijan done that? Okay, so remember that I said the region was an enclave? That means it's surrounded by Azerbaijan on all sides. So with the help of Russian peacekeepers, the two sides agreed to open a highway uh, in a place called the Lakin Corridor to connect Armenia to those majority Armenian areas in the enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh, basically, uh, you know, a corridor to connect uh, A and B. For a while, that road gave the region um, and the region's population, the ethnic Armenian population, a sense of comfort um, and security. Unfortunately, starting in December, Azerbaijani protesters uh, acting with Baku's support began hardening the corridor with concrete blocks and armed guards. And in April of this year, they set up a checkpoint on the highway to restrict the free movement of goods to and from Armenia um, to the enclave, uh, because they said that, you know, the road was being used to transport military equipment. And that really spooked the international community as a whole, uh, because the move would limit transport of humanitarian aid to the region. Uh, and it really heightened tensions between the ethnic Armenians and ethnic Ar Azerbaijanis in the area. So that should bring us to today, right? I mean, is, th is there another, is there a risk of another conflict? Yeah, I mean, there's always a possibility with such volatile situations. Uh, but that's not really why we're talking about this today. Uh, see, the foreign ministers of Armenia and Azerbaijan are currently in Washington for three days of peace talks. The basic tenets of a deal, uh, at least uh, as the Armenian side has laid out, is that Armenia would recognize Azerbaijan's control over the region, which I will say, you know, is a huge concession and one that's very rarely given in land disputes such as this. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Like uh, this is really groundbreaking. Um in return, Armenia is asking that Azerbaijan give security guarantees to the uh, 120,000 ethnic Armenians in that territory. Unfortunately, Azerbaijan says, you know, no deal. Such a deal won't work. According to its foreign minister, you know, this is an internal sovereign issue, quoting. Uh, and the Azerbaijan constitution and a number of international conventions to which Azerbaijan is a party provide all the necessary conditions to guarantee the rights of this population. So basically, Azerbaijan is 
saying they have enough security guarantees that they and they don't want to give any extra ones. Right. No special protections for this for exactly. this community because there's equal rights written into the Azerbaijani constitution. But so they say Armenia yeah. probably wouldn't accept that, would they? Well, the problem is that I'm not sure that they have much of a choice. Uh, you know, the fact that their government is ready to make such a concession is indicative of the of the fact that they have little to no leverage in this situation. Uh, so, uh, you know, as I said earlier, Azerbaijan has invested enormously in its military in recent years. And Russia, and to be fair, the wider international community too, you know, is completely distracted elsewhere. So Azerbaijan has the upper hand now and they know it. So whether or not we see a deal this week, which, again, let me just interject, I don't think it's highly likely. Uh, I think the issue could very well be on its way to being settled. And, you know, regardless of whether you're personally satisfied about the terms of this hypothetical deal, and uh, genuinely, I imagine many people aren't satisfied at all, hopefully that does mean that an end to decades of violence is within reach. Today's show is sponsored by HubSpot. Public speaking is no easy feat, but if you can articulate your thoughts and emotions with clarity, that is really powerful stuff. And that's exactly why HubSpot made a brand new business communication guide. It'll help you speak with power and poise in the workplace and win lots of brownie points with your peers. Check it out for free at the link in the show notes. All right, welcome back. Next up, Val, we're talking debt. Oh, yes, we are. Um, uh, and this is a story that we've been tracking for a while now, like so many others. And, you know, yes, it's a few days old. But at this point, I think it's too important not to cover it. So strap in, because we're going all the way to South Central Africa for this, to the lovely country of Zambia, which, fun fact, is shaped like a horse drinking water if you flip the map upside down. Focus, Val. Focus. Come on. <laughs> Listen, I'm a fun, <laughs> uh, fun fact girl. Okay, so um, the story here is that last week, several of Zambia's largest foreign creditors agreed to restructure around 6.3 billion with a B of its debt, which is only half of Zambia's total external debt, but it's a huge deal considering that in 2020, Zambia defaulted on its debt. After more than a decade of catastrophic economic losses, they really had few options at that point. For reference, between 2010 and 2020, its GDP shrunk from about 30 billion to under 20 billion, uh, and its debt to GDP ratio increased from 16% to 140 in the same period. Six, that's 1616. Yeah. Wow. To 140. Yeah, I know. I have a moment to take that in. <laughs> Obviously, the debt default made things much worse uh, because at that point, you can't sell any government bonds to raise funds to service your existing debts. So you're stuck in a situation where your credit creditors are banging on your door, but you've got absolutely no way of paying them back. And the thing is, Zambia is hardly alone amongst developing countries uh, with, uh, you know, seriously misaligned balance sheets. So fears starting spreading in the international community that other countries would default to. Well, so how did Zambia's creditors 
come to this agreement and what what took them so long? So uh, the agreement was actually struck at the inaugural summit for a new global financing pact last week in Paris, which brought together dozens of world leaders to discuss this very issue, developing world debt uh, and how to jumpstart the global south green energy transition as well. Uh, And the issue of Zambia's debt was seen as amongst the most important topics to discuss because one, Zambia has so much, so many resources like copper um, that governments around the world have been eyeing for a while. Uh, And two, because Zambia is the first pandemic era default, but not the last. So setting, you know, getting a breakthrough uh, with Zambia was critical to getting a breakthrough elsewhere as well. But to your question, Ethan, the reason why this took so long to sort out is because of deep disagreements between China and Zambia's Western creditors. China is by far Zambia's biggest lender and was adamant that it be paid back in a timely manner and it stuck to its guns for a while. But after a ton of international pressure, it agreed to extend Zambia's repayment period around two-thirds, on around two-thirds of the debt that it owes Beijing. Uh, And it it has delayed this repayment for uh, more than two decades. So now Zambia has a little bit more breathing time. Um, But, you know, it also helps Zambia unlock a major IMF loan. So even if the debt hasn't gone away, it's still a huge sigh of relief. And how about the rest of the developing world? I mean, these other debt burden countries that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, well, it's huge news for them. Uh, because it sets a precedent, and that's something very, very impactful. Uh, Think about this. According to the IMF, there are more than 70 low-income countries that collectively owe nearly $330 billion to foreign creditors. And more than half of those loans are distressed, which means that they're likely not to be uh, paid back without restructuring or without some sort of tinkering. It's taken China a bit of time to learn the lesson that Western creditors learned uh, a long time ago. Uh, And that is that returns on these loans, especially in a higher interest rate environment, are certainly not guaranteed. And the real benefits uh, are more geopolitical in nature. It helps you make friends uh, and increases your influence abroad. So if Zambia's restructuring plans can serve as a model for other debt distressed countries, it could be a game changer, you know, uh, for developing economies around the world. A game changer indeed. Well, thank you so much, Val. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much for having me on, Ethan. Here are a couple of the stories we're tracking today. Burmese authorities burnt a record $446 million in illegal drugs to mark International Day Against Drug Abuse and Illicit Trafficking. Myanmar has become a global production hub for synthetic drugs. German Defense Minister Boris Pistorius announced Germany will permanently station 4,000 troops in Lithuania to help secure NATO's eastern flank. NATO leaders will be meeting in Lithuania's capital, Vilnius, for their yearly summit next month. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, the annual Muslim pilgrimage to Mecca in Saudi Arabia, otherwise known as Hajj, is at full capacity this year for the first time since COVID. Check out the International Intrigue newsletter to see how many people are expected to make the journey. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Friday.